Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday. For many people, it is the Friday before a long weekend. So we are going to take some time talking about 911 communication. And if you've been listening to the news, you've likely heard the news. There have been some issues with wait times and, well, wait times when people are calling 911. So let's talk about that right now with Kayla Butler, Communications Manager with Ecom 911. Kayla, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Jill. So this really was highlighted yesterday. I know Ecom 911 has a Twitter account. There were tweets going out about the delays and about the volume of calls. So what happened yesterday? Sure. So like you mentioned, and, and like we've been seeing kind of increasing over the, the summer months and now into the fall, um, we unfortunately have been seeing quite regular transfer delays from that 911 line to BC Emergency Health Services who oversee the ambulance. So when we receive a 911 call, the first question, of course, do you need police, fire or ambulance? Anyone who requests ambulance for medical assistance, we do transfer immediately over to the team at BC EHS. Uh, What's been happening, unfortunately, is we're seeing quite extended delays in that transfer process. Of course, our staff stay on the line with the caller the whole way through to ensure that that transfer is completed successfully. But that also means that we now have 911 call takers waiting on the line and unable to answer those next calls in queue, uh, which, of course, is is part of what we were seeing yesterday during our our delays. Uh, So it sounds like essentially are people on hold or then the 911 dispatcher is also on hold with the person who has called 911? That's correct. So what happens during that transfer process, it is a live hold. So our call taker is there with the caller throughout the transfer. Um, they're likely at this point hearing an automated recording saying we're on, we've got you on the line. Um, we are, we'll answer as soon as someone is available. Our call taker, of course, staying on the line the whole time, um, offering reassurance that they're there and that they will ensure the transfer goes through appropriately. Mm, that's got to be uh, bo- both, I would imagine, uh, frustrating and frightening for people, too, when they're calling, clearly calling with an emergency for medical help, uh, having to, to kind of sit there. And while it's great the 911 dispatcher is still there, uh, not, not the, the area that they were hoping to get to. Absolutely. And, and we recognize how difficult this can be, not just for the caller, of course, who is needing urgent medical care and, and unable to get through, but also for our staff who you know, are seeing those calls queue up on 911. They're waiting with a caller that they know needs that urgent medical care um, and unable to get them the action and and the response that they need. It's been an incredibly difficult time for the public and for our staff as well. And I know this information would come from BC Emergency Health Services, but we have been talking to ambulance paramedics about shortages and about just how busy they've been these past few months as well. Do we know the delays then? Is it just the the amount of volume and there's just not enough, enough resources to get to people quicker? You know, as much as we can't speak to specifics about what these delays may be stemming from, it it is important, Jill, to remember that it has been an incredibly busy summer for emergency services. There is no denying that, you know, 911 call volumes themselves are up across the board, that there are more requests for services or from any emergency services. So that being ambulance, police and fire, of course, with you know, COVID-19 still ongoing. We had the heat wave earlier this summer. Um, we continue to see kind of these major events that are that are happening. So, yes, of course, there is an increase in, in demand across the board. 
So, so when something like this happens, if somebody calls 911 and, and, and it is something urgent, say they call and say, I'm having a heart attack. I need ambulance. I'm having a heart attack. They go into that queue and the, answer, the, the call isn't answered right away. Does the dispatcher then send firefighters that would have first aid training instead? Or what is the protocol in that, in that scenario? So ECOM's role um, when answering these 911 calls, if there's a request for ambulance, we have to transfer that over to BC Emergency Health Services. Any kind of solutions or um, resolutions for what we can do while we have those callers on the line, that would need to be spoken to by BC EHS. But our job, absolutely, we get the call and we transfer it right over to their team and, and hopefully they can answer as quickly as possible. Would there ever be a scenario then when somebody, even though you need emergency medical help, if it's the difference between getting a firefighter to your door or being put on hold for an ambulance, uh, it might be someone's cho- preference in that scenario to call, to be put through to fire? Certainly. And, and there are more than likely situations where this is ongoing. At this point, we continue to work very closely with BCEHS's leadership team um, and following their support and their guidance on how we can manage these calls to ensure that they are getting the emergency medical support that they need. Um, and that, that, again, is something that BCEHS could speak a little more to. Um, but absolutely, we are, we are working with them very closely on solutions to not just the ambulance transfer delays, but of course the implications that these are having on 911 call answers as well. Uh, are there scenarios when, when people are losing their cool and, and maybe forgetting that it's not the dispatcher's faults, it's not the dispatchers doing anything wrong and are taking it out on the dispatchers? You know what, Jill, I, there are always situations, especially in heightened emotions where people can lose their cool, they're getting frustrated and as much as we fully understand that, um, we do ask as much as possible. You know, our call takers are with you. We're doing everything that we can to get you the, the support and the help that you need. Um, that said, at the end of the day, we, we understand where those frustrations are stemming from. Um, and that's never something that we would hold the, against the caller at all. Right. No, and I get that. And it's just unfortunate. I would imagine in these very high stressful situations, people might lose their cool and be apologetic after, but maybe in the moment, their frustrations kind of bubble over a bit. Um, This might, this might be a a question, an oversimplifying question, but I, I thought there was a time when you called 911 and and people who have called 911 know, like you said, the question is police, fire or ambulance. But aren't there scenarios when both fire and ambulance show up? Certainly. So what happens when someone dials 911? Um, We do, of course, ask, do you need police, fire or ambulance? We do not question uh, the agency of request. So if somebody calls in and they request that ambulance service, we will transfer the call to ambulance per request. There are times where another first responding agency may tap in um, another one. So, for example, an ambulance request could have fire attend as well. A police request could have fire or ambulance attend as well. So that that certainly happens. However, in that initial 911 call portion, uh, we go ahead and we transfer per the caller's request. Okay. So, but who makes the decision then that maybe they send all three? So that would be the agency that's overseeing the call. So if we are transferring over to ambulance and the ambulance call taker dispatchers are are working through the call and decide that additional resources are needed, uh, they can go ahead and and tap in the other police fire ambulance agencies. 
Okay, that makes sense. Um, what are you advising people then? Obviously, if you need 911, call 911 if it's an emergency. But are you advising people that we could see this through the long weekend? Or, or what are you telling people as we head into the long weekend? You know, Joe, we, we do have concerns that we may see waits um, related to ambulance delays and ambulance transfer delays throughout the weekend. Uh, the biggest thing that we can ask from the public is if you are in an emergency situation, your life is in risk. Your property is in immediate jeopardy and you need first response right away. Please don't hesitate to call 911. If you hear an automated recording, please do not hang up the line. We are finding that some callers think that if they hit the automated uh, voice recording, that if they disconnect and call back, that they're going to get through faster. That's in fact not the case at all and, and actually ties up multiple lines at this point. So if you need to call 911, just stay on the line. We will get you help as soon as we can. If you know you have a situation that is not urgent, either there's been a time delay, um, you know, it's, it's not a call where you need that absolute immediate response. Perhaps uh, consider calling police non-emergency lines if it's a police request. Uh, we have a great list of alternative resources on our website, ecom911.ca, uh, for some of the other scenarios that we do see come through sometimes on 911 or the emergency, non-emergency lines, um, things that are better suited for perhaps the civic services, BC Hydro, um, et cetera. All right. That is good information. Good advice. I wanted to touch on one other uh, thing that I had seen, and this was also on the e-com Twitter feed. And I, I think people might be under the impression that our phones are so smart now that people, dispatchers know exactly where we are without us having to say. But it was the reminder of don't say things like I'm at my neighbor's house or, or something generic like that. How important is it to, as far as location and what people are telling your dispatchers? That's absolutely critical, Jill, and I'm, I'm really glad that you've brought that up. One of the first questions that you are going to be asked by one of our call takers is, where are you? What is your location? Where is the situation happening? And of course, your exact address with, you know, unit number, buzzer codes, et cetera, is going to be the most important information that we can get from you. If you don't know, um, crossroads are very, very helpful Um location to major landmarks, you know, I'm in this park, I've been on minutes, if you happen to know your compass directions, um, those are all very important. And of course, without a location, we're not able to get you the help that you need. All right, we will leave it there. Kayla, very good information anytime, especially though going into a long weekend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Well, some new research, it's just been released, and it shows about half of the people who had COVID-19-like symptoms and who were awaiting test results and were told to self-isolate understood what self-isolation meant, but didn't do it, and for a variety of reasons. So joining me to talk about this and what we've learned from this is Dr. Andrew Kessler, scientist with the Center for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences, also an emergency room physician at St. Paul's. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm happy to be on the line with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Interesting numbers, uh, maybe a bit alarming for people. And this was research that was done talking to individuals who had gone to emergency rooms or been discharged from uh, St. Paul's Hospital, Lionsgate and Mount St. Joseph's uh, from May to June in 2020. So what did you find? So we found that, uh, I think, as you said, uh, just a little bit uh, over half the people were able to adhere to the self-isolation regulations. 
um, we found that um, most of those, so I think 80% scored well or got all the answers right when we asked them a quiz about what they were supposed to do. And I think the, the part that was interesting is that it wasn't so much kind of uh, willful disregard that, that people were engaging in. I think it was just challenging for people to, to self-isolate. So I think there were sort of two reasons. There's kind of reasons for leaving your home. And so I think people had trouble getting what they needed in terms of medications or food. So they were leaving their home, even if they were told to self-isolate. And then I think the other thing in terms of self-isolating at home, uh, just from other members of your household was challenging because a lot of about two thirds of our respondents shared their place with others. Um, many of those did not have their own bedroom, bathroom, separate kitchen. So really hard to self-isolate at, at home and throw in that um, about a quarter of our respondents also were primary caregivers for children or older adults. So all these, all these things kind of making it uh a bit more challenging to self-isolate appropriately. Uh, so was it surprising to you that that number was so high or when you saw the reasons, uh, space, necessity, that kind of thing, did it kind of make sense? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it was surprising. I mean, we had read, uh, there was other research on difficulty self-isolating for some marginalized populations, like uh, people who are homeless, and you can imagine that, and, and they were not... Uh, the focus of our of our study, but um, when we were you know interviewing people who were you know who had stable housing, who had um, you know for the most part were employed, um, some of whom about twenty percent in healthcare, it was it was a bit surprising that that many people faced um, faced challenging various challenges in self isolating. And to be clear on on who the people were in this study, were these people that came to the hospitals because they had COVID-19 symptoms or they were there for other reasons and and showed symptoms that and that's what led to health officials telling them they had to isolate? Correct. So um, these people were people who came because they had symptoms of of some kind that could be related to uh, COVID-19. So not necessarily everybody came to the emergency department thinking they had COVID-19. They thought they might have had some kind of diarrheal illness, but that can be a, a symptom of COVID. So we, we tested those people and we instructed all those people to self-isolate. And just to be clear, the, the recommendation to self-isolate was coming from us as, as emergency providers um, because, you know, some people were going to have COVID and some people were not, but the, the standard is to self-isolate until you know whether you have COVID or not. Um, and, um, yeah, so only about 8% of people in our sample ended up having COVID, but um, we essentially were asking them questions about that period um, from their testing time to the time that they uh, received their results. So 8% in that sample ended up having COVID-19. Is it possible to see then if there was more exposure because that 8% didn't isolate or if they did pass it on to other family members or other people that they had contact with? Um, no, we don't know. I mean, again, this was a survey and we're relying on people's sort of self-report of, of what they did. Um, but we know that 
um, again, we know that sort of two-thirds of the people shared their homes with others, and two-thirds of those said they couldn't really effectively stay away from other people within their households. So, so we know that, you know, regardless of whether they had COVID or not, they couldn't really, um, most people couldn't really stay away from other people in their home. Right. So, so does it show us that? And, and even though back in in when this was done, or, or look at talking to people in May and in June of 2020, uh, does it show us that that moving forward, if we're in another scenario, or as we continue with this pandemic, if there are scenarios where people are are told to isolate, that that for the better for for the for the good of everybody that they have to isolate, that we need to address the fact that, and again, like you said, these weren't people who were just thumbing their noses at the rules. They were people who genuinely couldn't make this happen. Do we need to make sure there are, are things in place to kind of help people be able to do this? Um, absolutely. And I mean, I think that some modeling shows that you need about 70% of people to adhere to self-isolation uh, rules to to sort of really um, contain contain spread, um, and so we were short of that short of that at fifty six percent. So yes, I mean we need to find ways to better support people in um, self isolation. I think that's one thing we did as a small quality improvement project where we just um, tried to provide people with community resources for how they may might get their food or medications delivered. But I think that needs to be done on a much more sort of wide systemic level where um, people are are better supported in their self-isolation efforts. Anything else that you took from this research or or that surprised you or that that you think we can learn from? I think, um, yeah, I think it was the surprise was that um, it was not, you mentioned this, it was not willful disregard. It was not, there aren't necessarily a whole bunch of bad actors out there who are really intentionally trying to put other people at risk. It really is people who are, you know, have a pretty good understanding of what needs to be done in terms of self-isolation, but find it their challenges to doing so. Um, so I think the extent to which that was true, even um, um, among a group of people who were not particularly disadvantaged in any way, I think that was, that was the big surprise. Hmm. It is interesting to look at that. And I do wonder, and I guess this is kind of hypothetical, but do you think given what we've learned and what we know now with the Delta variant being much more transmissible, if if you were to do this study again with a different group of people, there might be a different outcome? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, um, as you allude to, a very sort of evolving pandemic. Um, but I think because of that increased transmissibility, the these findings are all the more important because that that ability to sort of self-isolate yourself from others is is huge to prevent the spread. All right. Well, very interesting findings and research. Dr. Kessler, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for being with you. Well, tri- with us, thank you uh, for being here. Tributes are pouring in today. For a longtime White Rock restaurant owner, he died after a battle with COVID-19. John Carroll opened the restaurant Charlie Don't Surf back in 1985, and he has been a much-loved member of that community ever since. He is today being remembered as a leader, somebody who would always go the extra mile for his friends and for his family. And joining us on the line to to talk more about this is Kyle Grant, who is the Assistant General Manager for Charlie Don't Surf. Kyle, thank you so much for being with us. 
Hey, no problem. You can hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you fine. Um, Perfect. My condolences to you. I've been seeing some of the tributes. I'm so sorry for, for your loss and for so many who are grieving today. No, you know, we we had a long relationship and some staff that have been there for over 20 years. It, it's, it was a sudden unexpected loss and um, he, he truly defined a, a good chunk of what White Rock was. Uh, I think anybody that has spent any time on Marine Drive or has gone to restaurants there has probably gone to Charlie Don't Surf, maybe even met uh, John Carroll. How would you describe him? I know a, a lot of people are talking about him being a great leader and kind of having his own way of doing things. How would you describe him? You know, he was a tough boss when he needed to be, and he was extremely eccentric. Um, he, But he would only ever stalk the best. Like, he was... He, he kept good staff around. He kept good company. Um, and every day he'd come in and something in that restaurant would change, be it some new menu item, something organic on the menu, or just a new paint job. He just, he was always striving to make his vision uh, ever present. And he talked, or I talked a little bit there, mentioned that he, he passed away. Uh, I know people would have been quite shocked to learn about his passing yesterday, but he did die of COVID-19. Had he suffered with the virus for, for some time? Um, I can't elaborate too much on that. Um, John was a very private man, um, and none of us knew until it was um, until time was pretty much up. Mm, that's got to be even more difficult than people maybe that would have wanted to say goodbye or or, or, or kind of follow along and, and know what was happening to him. Yeah, I mean, he has family. And again, they're a very private group. Um, but you know what? He, he's the type of guy that if he was able to, to come out of it, uh, he wouldn't want anybody to know he ever had it. So. Right. Uh, and I don't want to pry. I, I, I don't want to fixate mm-hmm. on that. But but I know you've, you've talked about the fact that he was very active and a careful person. Do you know if he had been vaccinated against COVID-19? Um, I can't talk to his private health choices. Um, and, and he would never tell anybody if he was or if he wasn't. All right. Uh, I would imagine, yeah. though, the restaurant, uh, Charlie, don't surf. Uh, you've been asking for vaccine passports and, and obviously have seen a lot of things change with the virus and running a restaurant. A hundred percent. It's been a challenging few years, to say the least. Um, it, it, he was helping hand write out ROEs when the, the closures first happened. And when we reopened, we were we, we, we were setting a higher standard for cleanliness and a higher standard for following the provincial health orders. Uh, even when masks came off, our staff continued to wear them, uh, and um, we <laughs> spent quite a bit of money on extra sanitizer because we just wanted to make sure everything was done to the T. Um, and that, today, that means covering, um, uh, yeah, c- covering the QR codes. We're a hundred percent compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I would imagine then also kind of serves as a cautionary tale. Here's somebody who, as you said, was a healthy person, who was very, mm-hmm. uh, ate well, very active, did all of those measures to make sure they were following the rules and cleanliness and still succumb to this virus. And, you know, John was, especially the last several months when cases re- reemerged, he was very careful. He reduced his social contacts. But it's still out there in our community, and we all have to do our part to, to try to reduce that so there's no more tragic losses like, like him. Hmm. 
<laughs> what else are people saying about John? It just seems that he was such an icon in the community and other restaurant owners knew him, respected him. And, and it seems like so many people want to now pay their respects. Yeah, he was, um, he was a big, big piece of White Rock. And, uh, and you'll never, you can go into town and you can ask anybody about him and everybody will have some story about just how iconic he was. He was, throughout the years, he was quintessential White Rock. I think people, even if they aren't familiar with the restaurants or uh, or familiar with John, they might be thinking, wait a minute, where have I heard that name before? And the first thing that I thought of when I saw that today was the story that we did when the restaurant was broken into and one of his prize mm-hmm. guitars was stolen and uh, he spoke out about it then. Yeah, he um, it, it really speaks to his character. Uh, one day, uh, Malcolm and Angus Young from ACDC were in the restaurant um, and he had the opportunity to have dinner with them. And on the spot, he went up to Tapestry, said, get me that guitar. They signed it on the spot, no certificate of authenticity or anything. And somebody broke in and took it. I think that was in 2013. Um, it's been gone for a long time. And uh, that, was, that, that was devastating to him, but he's, he, he was upset for a little bit, but he just, he just got on with it. And that was one of his favorite quotes. Did he, did, it, oh, did he ever get it back? Nope. No. It's, it's gone. Hmm. How will the restaurant kind of pay tribute or, or continue his legacy, I guess, now that, that he has passed away? You know, it's, I, I can't speak to his secession plan that much, but t- today we're open. And, and today the staff just wanted to, to go back to work and, and just continue doing it. Um, because that's what he would have wanted. I mean, he's, his legacy extends way past Charlie's. He's part owner in four other restaurants, uh, other business ventures, and we have a large extended family of hospitality workers that when push comes to shove, we're, we're just going to keep moving. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd read as well uh, somebody saying that uh, he's he's looking down on us now with a wheatgrass smoothie or, or some kind of an organic food <laughs> in his hand. Does that does that sound like something? Uh, that yep, he's uh, he. There there was a couple year period he had wheatgrass growing in the kitchen. I would imagine, too, that he would want to, and again, just going back to what you said about the measures that were in place to keep people safe and and to make help the restaurant keep going, that, that he would want, mm-hmm. uh, if something does come of this, people hear this story that, again, this, this is somebody who passed away from COVID-19, that he would want people to do whatever they could to keep themselves safe. Well, exactly. You know, he it, it, every time one of our longstanding customers or friends of him would pass, it was a really defining moment in him. And um, he he just took great pride in the extra steps that we took. Anything we could do that was above and beyond the expectations to reduce it and, and make a safe environment for everything, he was thrilled about. And absolutely, he would want if, if everybody to do everything you can to keep your neighbor safe, because that's just who he was. Uh, as we talk about this and have this conversation, I don't know if you'd seen the story, but there is a, a restaurant in Hope that is openly defying the rules and saying that they won't uh, comply and they're not going to check for the vaccine passports. I don't think it's uh, that's, that it's necessary. Uh, what do you think John would say to something like that? Um, I can't speak for him uh, because he's he, he's the type that he would 
if, if the government tried to impose a closure on him, he wouldn't be thrilled about it. But at the same time, he wouldn't go out there and try to kill his neighbours. Uh, are you anticipating, like you said, the restaurant is open today. Are you anticipating having to, to deal with a lot of, obviously, not only grief-stricken staff, but there are going to be patrons coming in who will just be hearing about this. Uh, are, you, are you anticipating mm-hmm. or, or prepared to, to have to, to deal with giving so many people this bad news? Yeah, the, um, the beauty of how tight-knit the, uh, the community is, especially the people that, that knew him for, for a long time, the vast majority of people have already found out um, his death put shockwaves through the community and, and, and word of mouth spread fast. But uh, we are we are prepared to have those hard conversations and, and the staff are going to have to confront their grief. And, and we're just going to do, do what's necessary. All right. Well, Kyle, my condolences again. And I know it's a very sad day for so many people and a huge icon in White Rock is is gone today. But thank you for taking the time and for talking with us. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Well, a new memo has gone out, an email to the members of the BC Teachers Federation. It is from Terry Mooring, the president of the BCTF, saying that it has become clear to us that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate is likely to come to the public education system and that the BCTF Executive Committee met, discussed the issues and took the position that the Federation supports provincial mandatory vaccines in the K-12 system for school staff and volunteers. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joel. Uh, this is a bit of a shift in policy from the BCTF. Uh, how confident are you or do you know when you're expecting this mandate to come in? Well, we don't know, but I think the key uh, to what we're saying is that it be provincial. And so we have a lot of concerns with the concept that's being floated right now that there could this could be left up to a district to district approach, which we think would be could be very destabilizing to the system. And and we do you know think that if government has decided that they want to institute a mandatory vaccination program across the province, or if the provincial health office decides that, that they ought to ensure that it's provincial. Right, because it also doesn't seem overly efficient striking a committee and having each school district talking about it separately. It's not efficient at all. And we think that it could result in some really unfortunate consequences, such as, you know, the areas of the province and the communities where there is already high vaccination rates and a a really, you know, kind of strong adherence to the safety measures that that the mandate would be put in place in those um, communities and not in other parts of the province where we're seeing high levels of hesitancy. Um, and, and when we see high levels of hesitancy in a community, you know, there isn't a group of workers that's sort of excluded from that hesitancy. So I don't doubt that, it, that uh, in the pro- parts of the province where, you know, the vaccination rates are low, that they're lower amongst teachers, amongst you know, healthcare professionals, you know, amongst every different group in the community. And so, you know, we don't need to see a situation where a mandate is needed in, in parts of the province where it's needed the least ends up implementing them and, you know, leaving the areas of the province where it's needed the most uh, not implemented. 
And so it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to do it district by district. And so if that was to happen, though, and provincially a mandate came in and there was a timeline given for all teachers, then would have to be all teachers and volunteers, anybody working in the education system to be to be uh, the mandate for vaccination. Uh, Do you think then, though, we would see or you would see people in some areas, like you said, where there's already high levels of vaccination would be fine with it? Will we then see districts throughout the province where teachers revolted or refused to do it? Well, across the province, you know, teachers are vaccinated at a very high rate. But, but as I say, there, there's no doubt that there's parts of the province where um, there, there's a lower rate. So, you know, ev- everyone that's not vaccinated is, is not sort of a, hom- a homogenous group. And so, you know, there are some uh, folks, undoubtedly, that just haven't, haven't prioritized vaccinations, haven't, um, d- hasn't d- decided it's important to them. They haven't been really given a strong reason to do it. And, you know, perhaps they're really healthy folks who just, you know, decided that they don't really need to be vaccinated. You know, we think uh, this will prompt them to get vaccinated. And so, you know, we've seen that in other jurisdictions where, you know, vaccination rates can increase by 10 to 20 percent just by uh, instituting a mandate. And so, you know, that's what that's what we would expect to see. And there may be, you know, a very small minority of teachers, just like, you know, in other professions where, you know, they decide that they're just not going to be vaccinated. And the reason that we sent out the letter was to ensure that they know what those consequences might be if they choose not to get vaccinated. Now, having said that, not only does the mandate mandate need to be provincial, but the policy needs to be be really um, outlined before any mandates put into place so that teachers have a really good idea about what those consequences exactly would be if they decided not to get vaccinated. What's really important here is that everybody is able to make an informed decision. And so we wouldn't expect any announcement about mandatory vaccinations for teachers until all those details are worked out. Uh, we've seen in other sectors, though, where there are mandates already and there have been firm dates set that employees need to be vaccinated, being told if you are not vaccinated by this date, it means you will either be your position will be terminated or you will be placed on unpaid leave. So wouldn't it make sense that if a mandate is brought in for teachers, it would be the same consequence? Well, that's yet to be determined because those conversations haven't happened. And so, you know, my point is that Everyone needs to be really clear about what those consequences are. Um, It's unfortunate that the the announcement was made about government workers, provincial government workers, um, having to be vaccinated without those details being um, worked out in advance. And so, you know, that's what we believe the purpose of the table is right now, is to ensure those details are worked out. Um, There are also um, workforce implications that we would expect to be having conversations with the Employers Association about. And so... All that needs to happen, in our view, before any kind of mandate would be instituted. And, you know, again, having it um, on the shoulders of individual school boards, district by district, um, makes absolutely no sense. You know, we could have a situation where we have neighboring school districts with different policies um, or, or, you know, one with a policy and one without a policy. And again, that would have a very destabilizing impact on both families and teachers. Um, and so this really does need to be uniform across BC. And in other jurisdictions like Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, where they have instituted mandatory vaccination programs, they are province-wide. 
So there needs to be a solution found in BC to do that. And it makes sense. Like you said, it would be very strange to see one district do one thing and right next door do another. Uh, in previous places, though, where we've seen a mandate come in looking at, at health care, long term care facilities and it coming in for acute care and that uh, there have been concerns about positions being eliminated or shortages. Uh, are you concerned then that we could see in some scenarios if a teacher is really against getting vaccinated, we could suddenly see vacancies? Well, we um, we already have a really critical teacher shortage. And so, um, you know, that's why we need to make sure that everyone understands the consequences before a mandate is put into place. Because, you know, it could have an impact on, on our members' pay and benefits and, and pensions. And everyone needs to be, you know, be able to make that fully informed decision. But, you know, what we're seeing in other places, it's a very, very small minority of people that would make that kind of extreme decision. Um, and so we would not expect to see widespread shortages because of this by any by any stretch of the imagination. But um, but there may be some individuals that make that choice. They certainly have the right to, to make it um, based on all the information available. And so that's why all the details would need to be worked out first. Uh, it was just a few days ago that we learned about the uh, the Ministry of Education convening the committee to discuss this, and that did get a lot of criticism as it seemed like a bit of a, a drawn-out process to deal with something that's already been done in other sectors. Uh, I know you said you don't know what time or the timeline of this, but, but do you have any idea or w- would you like to see, if, if you're sure this is going to happen, when would be a good time for this to happen? Well, first of all, we're not, we're not sure it's going to happen um, because, you know, I, I'm not certain that those decisions are made. What we know right now is that, you know, government sort of convened uh, a committee quite hastily this week, unfortunately, um, to have those conversations. We, we do know that there are some school boards that are starting to, you know, take a look at this and, and seek legal advice. And so, you know, we, we fully support um, there being, um, you know, a committee struck in order to make sure that there is advice and a framework in place. Um, the problem, though, if it's not provincially mandated, is that there would be nothing to sort of enforce school boards to actually use whatever is developed by the committee. Um, and, and so, you know, the only way for government to actually ensure that this kind of a program was implemented in a fair way across the province it has to be something that is done provincially um, because, you know, we what we can't have are different types of mandates with different sort of consequences in different school districts. And that's the risk that is being run if this isn't provincial. Right. And But you did write in the, the letter that went out says we don't know what a mandate might look like or how it would be implemented, but it seems clear that it is coming. So that does seem like you're, you're sure it is going to be on the way. Well, I'm not so. I, well, I mean, you know, certainly uh, it's likely because those conversations are happening, and so you know, I don't know what kind of timeline might be put in place. But again, um, those those are the decisions that have to be made, and and you know, that's why government needs to start having those conversations and make those decisions and not leave it up to individual school boards. And so, you know, again, that's the way to do it the, the in the most kind of orderly manner. And it's really important that everyone have confidence uh, in any kind of program that is rolled out. And so in order to do that, it needs to be, it needs to be the same everywhere. And so, um, you know, it, it's, we, we know that school boards are having these conversations. 
And so, you know, we're seeing mandates in other uh, sectors and in other jurisdictions. And so it does, you know, certainly appear that more mandates are being implemented. Um, And, you know, at this point, I, I certainly would understand families who are questioning, you know, why certain workers in other uh, occupations uh, need to be uh, vaccinated and, you know, educators don't. And so I, I, I think that's a compelling argument. And so, you know, I, I do expect that there'll be a lot of pressure um, put on government to, to put in a, a mandate. Um, and, and that's understandable. But there needs to be, you know, a strong leadership role played by government here. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what we're calling on them to do. Right. And, and I would imagine, too, a lot of those questions, especially for people who work in the elementary school grades, would, would also focus around the fact that teachers don't have a choice about being around a large group of people who aren't vaccinated, who can't be vaccinated. And that likely puts them at a, a higher risk. Yeah, well, that, that's, you know, that that's absolutely true. And, and what we're seeing right now in B.C. is... Uh, you know, more children are getting sick with the Delta variant, which was also very predictable in our view. We, we certainly thought that, that this is exactly what we would see um, because we were seeing that in other jurisdictions. And so, you know, when we're seeing, you know, more children getting sick with the Delta variant, it is, it is important that, you know, that there be decisions made to make sure everyone's protected. And so, you know, we, we do think that, um, you know, over time, there will be a, um, a mandate. We certainly hope it is provincial. Um, and, you know, that again, that's the only way to sort of ensure that it's rolled out in, in a fair and equitable manner across the province. All right, Terry Mooring, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for making the time for us. Thanks, Jill. Well, it is Thanksgiving weekend. That means a lot of people will likely be sitting down to have a turkey dinner, a feast of turkey, if you will. So we thought it might be interesting to take a little bit of time to talk about the turkey. But we're not talking about preparations or the best way to cook a turkey or anything like that, although I know there's interest in that as well. Instead, we are checking in with the Nature Conservancy of Canada because they sent us some information about turkeys that, well, I sure didn't know this, has to do with wild turkeys, how you can learn more about turkeys, the history of them in this country. Joining me to expand on all of this is Jensen Edwards, National Media Relations Manager with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you uh, as well. This uh, is filled with information, uh, The uh, what I was sent from the Nature Conservancy. So let's go through a bit of it. And I want to start with wild turkeys, because I don't think we think about that all that often. We think about turkeys in the grocery store, raised probably uh, close to, to how chickens are raised. But it, apparently it wasn't that long ago that there were there was an abundance of wild turkeys. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, about 100 years ago, actually, the wild turkey population in North America overall was pretty low. It was around, estimates put it around 30,000 birds uh, spread out across the continent. But now we think there's like 6, 7 million of them running around. Um, and sort of the southern southern band of British Columbia seems to be their northernmost natural range. Hmm. And, and do we know why there was this uh, increase in population? 
Yeah, so thanks to some conservation efforts, um, that, that's one way that, uh, like we've seen with so many other species as well, the conservation efforts, protecting habitat, um, managing hunting regulations, that's, that's how we've seen many species come back from being threatened. Um, so this has happened with the wild turkey situation as well. Um, in Ontario, for example, there used to just be a few thousand. Now there's about 100,000 because actual turkey populations were brought up from the states and established in Ontario. In the Kootenai region of BC, we see a similar thing happening with turkeys from Idaho cross the border and have started to establish themselves in, in that corner of the province. Hmm. You mentioned hunting regulations. Are there still people that will go out and get their own wild turkey? Yeah, so um, there, you are able to hunt wild turkeys. Obviously, regulations uh, differ on where you live in, in Canada and even probably within British Columbia. But uh, folks definitely do go out and hunt wild turkey. And it seems a good time of year to do so. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, wild turkeys and where we might spot those. Uh, I, I think I should have known this because we t- often say tom turkey and uh, the female turkeys, uh, again, similar to a chicken called, called the hens. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's something I, I didn't realize. And every year when I used to host the morning show, I would play a clip from my, one of my favorite episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, and it was the Turkeys Can't Fly episode. Uh, but according to this, some wild turkeys or wild turkeys can fly. Yes, they, they certainly can. You know, it's funny, I just watched that clip right before talking to you this afternoon. Um, yeah, wild turkeys can fly. They're, they're not particularly adept at, at flying, but they fly to roost, so they actually roost up in trees. Hmm, and I would imagine that's a, a evolutionary thing. Maybe they, they probably learned to do that for safety. Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, I can't speak to the definitively to that, but there definitely are different ways that different uh, birds protect themselves and their young in particular uh, from, from predation. And so we know that um, when, when turkeys are laying their eggs, they, they do tend to um, roost up in trees. Hmm. Um, a lot of feathers. How many feathers <laughs> does a turkey have? Yeah, more, more than 6,000 of them, which causes quite a rustling. I, <laughs> uh, I used to live near Christina Lake and on more than one occasion was startled by hearing a rustling in the bushes, uh, fearing the worst, only to find out it was one of these giant birds uh, wandering through the woods. Hmm. How, how big are they if, for, as far as for wild turkeys? Do they look similar to what we picture when we think of turkeys, or are they different? Yeah, so they look similar. They've got a big brown body and a big sort of fanned tail, um, like that classic uh, kid's craft that you do by tracing your hand <laughs> to be the, the tail feathers of the turkey. Um, and they can stand pretty tall. Uh, just from personal experience, uh, I recall seeing them standing at about two feet tall. Um, but uh, yeah, they're certainly quite an imposing bird, not just in their size, but in their physical abilities too. Like you said, you were surprised they could fly, but they can also run 19 kilometers an hour, which is at a sustained weight rate way faster than I can run. So mm-hmm. if, if one wanted something from me, they would certainly be able to catch up. Uh, are there any incidents of attacks or uh, will they defend themselves or should humans be worried if they get too close to them? I think like like most things in nature, it's nice to give wild animals the space they need. 
Um, we've all heard about goose attacks and other things like that. Um, I've never experienced a, any altercation with a turkey, thank goodness. Um, but I, I think it's best to, to err on the side of caution on that one. I wouldn't want to be the one who, who was the anecdote that proved that case. No, I don't think so. Um, not particularly picky eaters. So what do they eat? Yeah, they, they, they'll eat a little bit of anything. So seeds and nuts, um, all the way down to, to, to fruit like apples and even some critters like snails, worms, and amphibians like frogs. Hmm, that, that is really not uh, being a picky eater. <laughs> no, no, far more diverse diet than myself. I don't, I don't include snails very often. Uh, no, interesting, <laughs> interesting that. Uh, this one is, is a little bit odd as well. Won't go into super detail on this, but <laughs> I, I did find it interesting. So turkey droppings can tell mm-hmm. us a whole lot about the birds. Yes, yeah, this is something I learned this year as well. Um, we know that when you're out in the woods, you can find droppings and often determine what, what types of animals are out there, whether it was a bear or, or a cougar or a turkey in this case. But even with turkeys, you can look at the droppings, if you, if you really care to, and determine gender. Uh, so uh, female droppings are spiral-shaped, while male droppings are J-shaped. And the larger the diameter, the older the bird. I, I'm stunned at the level of detail in that and also wondering who was the person that took the time and did the research to discover that Mm -hmm. there are some interesting jobs out there for sure (laughs) yeah uh, indeed Uh, we're talking about this obviously because it is thanksgiving weekend and uh, a lot of people will be having a turkey dinner Uh, do you think enough attention though is paid to the wild turkey population Uh, i know in the information that you sent us uh, you referred to uh, the the wild turkey as the unsung holiday hero (laughs) definitely so like you said uh folks around this time of year get get their turkeys from different places if they get their turkeys at all uh some of those come from farms and some of those are wild turkeys themselves and if you go the wild turkey route i I think it's neat to to recognize it and give thanks to the conservation success story um, that is the wild turkey in north america coming back from just uh, a couple dozen thousand to several million across across the continent is a pretty impressive story of survival uh, do they have any relatives or are there are there other birds that are part of the turkey family that's a fantastic question and i don't know the answer <laughs> off the top of my head i'm sorry that is okay you've given us a lot of other information about the wild turkey population in this country uh, we'll leave it there for today uh, lots lots to chew on there jensen <laughs> edwards thanks so much for joining us thanks so much happy thanksgiving